Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 335, and I had a conversation with Nader Hanna. I met Nader at the Magic Castle after his performance. He's a magician, mentalist, hypnotist, and theologian. It's quite a combo. (laughs) We discuss Coptic Orthodox Christians, the history of mentalism, hyperhypnotic states, books, adventures, and more. It was a really great conversation. In other news, I saw the new Aubrey Plaza film, Emily the Criminal, and it is fantastic. Usually, I think she plays characters that are similar to her own personality, but she really, really shows her acting chops in this film. Highly recommend it. And in sad news, we lost the lovely and hilarious Leslie Jordan. He was an incredible bright spot in this world, and a few of my friends were actually really close with Leslie, so it's it's an extra sad time. Um, but the way he lived his life, he treated all as a friend and confidant, and he certainly made everyone's lives better during the pandemic with his hilarious videos on Instagram. <sighs> it's sad when such bright lights are taken from us, but he's one of those folks I feel like will live on forever uh, in our hearts, for sure, in our memories, but just in the uh, incredible body of work that he left for us. I just, I wanted to mention him because, well, because for me, he certainly helped me through some dark moments during the past few years. Humor is certainly, (sighs) that is the medicine, right? All right, business stuff. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links to learn more about my guests and the show. Go to susanruth.com to learn more about me personally. Uh, And you can follow my Instagram, susanruthism. There's also a Hey Human Podcast Instagram. Uh, I'm on social media all over the place under susanruthism, so uh, you'll find me pretty easily. Find my albums on Apple Music, on Spotify, or wherever you get your music. My most recent record is All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Also, check out my new relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. That show is on YouTube, youtube.com slash show. Are you digging the ad-free Hey Human podcast? Would you like to support the show? Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews really help, and and subscribing really helps the algorithm, so definitely do that and show your support for the show. Okay, be well, take care, be love, be light, uh, especially in these dark times upon us. Be the love that we wish to see in the world, yeah? All right, here we go. Nader, Hannah, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for having me. Nice this to, is awesome. Nice to have you over to the homestead. Yeah, I love it. It's great. I, I'm just, I was so taken back by all the wonderful art. Oh, thanks. I do love art. Uh, welcome, welcome. Thank we you. met not too long ago at the Magic Castle. Yes. I actually was waiting for the person that was coming on after you, John Slicer. Ah. I was there to see him and his performance. It's called a performance still, even though it's, right? Is yeah. magic considered a performance? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, and so I sat in on yours, and I just thought, wow, this guy's really good. Oh, you're so kind. And Thank there you. was something that your friend said when he stood up and said, uh, I don't think people realize that, that my friend 
not only two people in the world know how to do this. And then you went and did mentalisty type stuff. And I couldn't tell. It looked like you were not quite sure that he was going to say that. It looked like it surprised you. <laughs> it was a bit of a surprise. You know, it's funny. It's happened now a few times in, in the middle of my routine where a, a friend who's a, a magician wants to point to the to the fact that what the audience is probably seeing is not what they think they're seeing and he wanted to give them a little bit more feedback and that some of the things that I do or I choose to do as a mentalist is more of a skill based as opposed to a trick and I think that's who's trying to impress upon the audience that that was the case how do you mean what's the difference I mean a trick is a skill is it not that's a good question actually so tricks are more let's just say tricks are more reliable right so a magician doing a trick generally he's working on a very deceptive line right the line is the trick produces the method and the method creates the execution of the effect right mm -hmm. and i choose you know my show i do a hypnosis show as well so hypnosis although in the past it's been called a parlor trick right it's not a trick as far as what a magician would say it's a trick it uses a certain, I guess magicians view tricks as very different, differently than what, a, what maybe someone outside of the magic community would view a trick. So, for example, to me, a trick constitutes uh, something that, that has a method, and the method is a deceptive one, other than what you are actually trying to create the effect of. So, if I tell you, for example, this ball is going to vanish from this hand and reappear in this hand, well, the trick executed the effect. But it's a trick because that's not the reality. But if I say, for example, you're going to think the directions of where I need to go, and I will interpret your mind's, your mind's subtle responses to that thinking, well, th there is no trick there. I'm literally doing what I'm saying I'm doing outside of the, this, the, the um, you know, outside of the known method uh, trick that a, a magician would employ to produce it. For example, a magician might produce that effect in a very different way. He might actually employ a, a confederate or a stooge in the audience who would secretly code them or might have a hidden camera somewhere or maybe perhaps the object that gets hidden has some sort of electronic receiver you know, so they're not actually employing a, a, an actual skill. It's more, of la more or less they're theatrically acting the role and not interpreting the, the 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 brain signals that or the nervous signals that are coming through the, the brain I just assumed that the magician is uh, picking up on subtle movements mm. or subtle actions of the person that's leading them yes and you know that's that's the other thing is that a trick you know th that's where the trick the definition of a trick might differ. That seems like a skill. It's a, a skill. Exact. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that's what my friend was trying to impress. Yeah. That it's a skill. And to execute that reliably in a show where there's a lot of pressure. Hmm. And, and with people trying to succeed. trick you. And with people trying to trick you. And not, and not cooperating and being maybe, maybe a little drunk. Hmm. It, a it lot requires of drunk. <laughs> a lot of drunk. It requires a high degree of sensitivity that is yeah. seldom found. But I was able to train myself to do this. And I believe that that's what my friend was trying to to just sort of impress upon the audience because he is in awe of it, as many magicians are. Most magicians rely on tricks. 
Um, not that there are methods that a little bit more um, subtle, but those subtle methods, they won't do in a show because a show needs to be successful, needs to be reliable. The, tr the tricks have to work in order to make the show a successful show, magic show, right? It wouldn't be a good show if the magician's constantly failing, right? Um, so in regards to the fact that I choose to do something that requires a high degree of sensitivity and actually saying what I'm, what I'm doing, uh, and I choose to do that as my show, um, uh, it's, it's a pretty risky thing for any magician to do. But I've developed a high degree of sensitivity that I feel com confident in doing it in every show and, and succeeding. Would you say that then you were literally picking up on people's brainwaves? Well, that's the question. Here's the funny, here's the funny answer. My belief is, this is my honest belief, is when a person thinks about something hard enough, their brain will send a signal throughout their body. That signal is so subtle, most people can't pick it up naturally. There are people who can kick, like get visual cues, right? Like if someone's lying, nervous responses will start happening, right? Their hands will start sweating. They might exhibit certain eye movements of deception. Directional cues, like mental directional cues, in order to pick that up, you have to, ha you have, to have a high degree of sensitivity. The funny thing is, I'm not actually feeling for anything. That's the weird thing. Once you get very sensitive, you don't feel. You actually just know where to go. And it's hard to define that. I think this is the first time I've ever defined it for someone. Because I've told magicians this is the actual truth. Because it can be done without contact. Yeah, because you held my... So just to let the audience sure. know, there was a group sitting at the mm -hmm. front of the room that were all buddies. Obviously, they were pretty tipsy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and you went out of the room with a couple of them as yeah. your guard. And the woman that had been chosen to hide an object, uh, she went and hid it cool. somewhere. And then you were to come back in and find where she had hidden it by asking another person in her group to, to, to yeah. not say a word, but to think the direction of where the object was. That's correct. And that you were to then pick up that and then be able to find the object. And it, it was interesting because when you had left the room, they had all decided collectively to make you think that they had put it in the corner that you were drawn to immediately. Yeah. <laughs> that they all collectively had decided that. And so, you know, the woman that was to direct you, not by speaking or anything, just by thinking, you had, you were definitely all over the place, you know, in that area. Yeah. And then you said, oh, this, I think, you know, this isn't really working. And I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> so my hand popped up. Yeah. Because I was like, I want to see how the, how it works. And yeah. Why would I, this is my biggest frustration with people that go to magic shows, is mm -hmm. that they're somehow trying to out magic or outsmart or whatever. It's like, just, you know what, just do the thing. You're here yeah. to enjoy and That's be awesome. a part of something. You know, it's a communion. It's a, it's an agreement, if you will, between yeah. the person that's doing the thing for you and the person that's watching the thing anyway so and i wondered because you took you held on to my wrist but i i faced you and you were facing the direction of the audience i was facing you and i thought well i'm gonna think exactly where i know the object is mm -hmm. but i wondered after the fact i was like i wonder if i was making subtle Mm -hmm. movements but you said something afterward you came up and you said thank you for being so open 
and thinking so strongly. And I thought, yeah. well, that's a very interesting thing to say to someone if you were, now it could be part of the shtick, but it felt very real that you said, when you said that to me, I and felt like, yeah, I thought this guy actually, I think he actually picks up on stuff separate then. And then I thought, well, maybe you didn't have to hold my arm, which is why I found you later and said, could you have done that without holding on to me? And you said, yes. Yes. So it can be done without contact. The contact is faster. That's the honest truth. The contact is faster. Without contact, I can still find it. And even the same speed, and I could get narrow down to the one location if it's a good sender. Sometimes it's hard to know if you have a good sender. You know, the, I, it's the first time actually I, that I found out that what you just told me. I didn't know that they were collectively wanting to mess with me. They, I don't think even they knew that they were all giving, and I very much believe in energetic thought, mm -hmm. very much so. And so I was sitting in the back, and they were all in the front row, and I thought, well, shit, every single one of these four or five people is trying to make you go in that direction. Yeah, which I did. Which you did. Uh, so I knew, this is the funny thing is, um, there's a signal I get when I know I'm in the right location. Like, this is the, this is the location the person's thinking, this is where it is. And I got that very strongly with the first candidate. And when I wasn't there and then I realized she's sort of messing with me or leading me astray, mm. the only out really is to sit her down and seek out another sender because it is dependent on the sender, mm. right? So in your case, you were honest. You, were, you said, I'm going to think exactly where it is because I know where it is. And I'm not going to try to mislead you or misguide you. And I want this to succeed. And and I thank you for that because mm -hmm. that's all that's required, really, yeah, for success. Absolutely. And it's a it's a cool trick to observe. I mean, it's absolutely. a. I don't want to keep calling it a trick. It's an like experiment. More experiment. Yeah. yeah. I call it an experiment or a demonstration. Where are you from, and what got you into being a mentalist and a hypno You're a master hypnotist. I'm a hypno yeah, hypnotist, hypnotherapist. Yeah, so well. what got you into that stuff? So let's start with where are you from? Sure. I, I was born in Egypt, in, oh, okay. in Cairo. Mm -hmm. uh, my family is Coptic Orthodox Christian. Mm -hmm. That's the, the people you see sometimes, listeners, that's the, with the all black, and they've got the kind of the rounded squarish hat, and, the all, <laughs> and they've got the long cross around their neck yeah yeah, yeah. Very, wow you're very astute yeah <laughs> uh yeah that's exactly right uh the orthodox church goes back to the time of christ uh, mark the gospel writer apostle he left jerusalem came to alexandria and converted mm -hmm. converted people to christianity and uh, so i come from those converts so my family left egypt because egypt you know, it's a wonderful country, just not the most hospitable for minority groups. You know, and Christianity, the Christian minority group is the largest in that country, making about make a, they make up about ten percent of the people in Egypt. Um, so we left um, in the night in the early nineties, and then my family came here, and I've lived in the United States ever since. And um, and my father was an amateur magician. And that's what got me into magic. He showed me a card trick when I was about the age of um, around seven or eight. I can't remember if I was seven or eight. I remember it was around then because it was shortly after we came and and uh, I would do those cards. Like I had, so by the way, I, I was a very late talker when I was a kid. Um, I, in fact, when I was an infant, I, this is going to be kind of taken down a very weird path. 
But uh, in fact, when I was an infant, I sort of died. I stopped breathing and my eyes rolled back and the doctors were able to resuscitate me. And um, So your, your family had to bring you into the emergency? and Correct. Yeah, my mom found me. Like a SIDS situation. SIDS, exactly. I had a sudden, sudden infant death syndrome. Terrifying. Situation. And luckily, we were very close to the hospital, so my mom grabbed me and ran with me to the hospital. They revived me. And they, you know, they thought that maybe mentally I wouldn't be able to, you know, because I had lost oxygen for a period of time to my brain. So they thought perhaps I may have, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, um, um, a mental, mental handicap yeah, of some sure, kind. Sure. You know, and I sort of did, actually. I was very late talking. I started talking only when I was like four or five. Like, I'd only say a few words. And uh, So when we came here, I, I didn't really... My Arabic was pretty not the best. And then, you know, I was barely trying to learn English. And I was very confused. And I had really no friends. And I got picked on and all that stuff. And uh, those card tricks uh, made me feel different. Like, and allowed me to present something to kids uh, that, made, you know, attracted them to me. Mm. And I felt special. And, and so those card tricks were really, uh, in a weird way, they were just... I, they were a tool just for me to, you know, make friends. Mm-hmm. Really. And um, I remember I exhausted all my dad's card tricks, you know, all the ones he knew. And uh, and then, like, a relative of ours, a relative friend of ours, um, another person in the cop, the community, bought, bought me a book, a magic book. And it was... They called, didn't think that was devilish? <laughs> no, you know That's what's good. funny? Some people do. Some people look sure. at it that way. You know, in Egypt, they call they call magic sleight of hand. Mm. It's called, in Arabic, it literally, there's no word. Magic is like sorcery, black magic, you know, like that sort of thing, like sorcery or divination. Mm. But in Egypt, the, the art, the artistic, theatrical expression of like sleight of hand is what, what they... Um, they call it like mm-hmm. or sleight of hand it's just known by that also there's magicians in the bible correct but they're even those people are sorcery right they're related to sorcery but in egypt they so someone who does theatrical presentation of mystery they just say it's sleight of hand and so he bought me a magic book it was called the klutz book of magic klutz klutz yeah As in, whoops. <laughs> yeah like in, yeah <laughs> okay. actually they had a whole series the klutz <laughs> They had a, cl- a clutch book on juggling. That's almost like dummies, you know, the dummies. Yes. Yes. That's exactly, actually, I think it was prior to the dummy series. That's was just the funny that it's clutz. Yeah, you're a clutz. <laughs> I, I kind of like the word clutz better than dummy. <laughs> yeah, it, I agree. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's actually older than the dummies books. Oh, I'm sure. Do you want another lemon drop? You good? No, I think I'm good. Okay. So yeah, he got me that book. I, I did every trick in that book. It came with like, magic props and stuff mm-hmm. and that was cool and then um it must have been thrilling yeah it was really cool like i i felt i felt more professional and you know? seen i'm sure you felt seen yes ex- that's exactly that's the best way to put it because you don't when you're so when you don't really fit in you feel like no one's paying attention to you and you can't really and you're not being seen exactly that's ex- a good way to put it mm-hmm. so yeah i was being noticed now and, you know and uh, I started. I did magic all the way up until high school, and then around high school, I dropped it. Uh, I started getting really religious, and um, like around sixteen, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to join a monastery right out of high school. Wow! Yeah, an orth- a Coptic Orthodox monastery. Was that family influence, or did you come to that of your own volition? I came to that out of my own volition. Okay. Yeah, it was nine eleven. 
that that sort of spawned or i would say was the catalyst interesting did you get a lot of people looking at you sideways uh you know it wasn't even that it was um although there was obviously animosity towards anyone with dark skin that looks like you of course correct yeah yeah anyone from that region yeah you were you were put into this category of muslim terrorist right um but it wasn't even that it was you know what it was it was something i was a very innocent kid and 9-11 took away my innocence and I started seeing that the world is a lot more evil and a lot more sinister than I, than I was led to believe. So I sort of had like this weird moment where I tried to find the solution to evil. And I looked into religion. And I remember, you know, growing up in the Orthodox Church, we're, you know, we're, we're brought up in the church. And so you always have these things in the back of your head. And I wasn't religious. I wouldn't even, I, you know, I'd go to Sunday school, but I wasn't very attentive. Like, I didn't even read the Bible or anything. I, and your family also not as into it. They were just run of the mill, the way most yeah, Christians I would are. say, yeah, run of the mill. You know, yeah. we'd go to church and high pray. Hol- the and high holidays and things. That sort of thing. Yeah, we'd go probably, we'd be more frequent. Yeah, but, you know, but it was still, I wouldn't say we were uberly religious or anything. But it all, it's just all kind of... Uh, to me, religion was something I started to look into because of 9-11. As an antidote to evil. As an antidote to evil. That's a good way to, to phrase it. Jeez, you're good at phrasing, too. <laughs> I can see why you're a writer. We grew up watching these old VHS tapes of the church martyrs. Because the Christian... So you've probably heard that the early Christian church suffered extreme persecution. Sure under the hands of the Romans and the Mamelukes and the Berber and all these people that... And there were so many religions fighting it out to be the, the one that was... The dominant. The dominant. Correct. There's a great book about that called Zealot. I recommend for anyone who wants to read it. Zealot. I have to, I, I, it's I have a great to, book. I don't think I've read that. I have yeah. to check it out. Um, but the ortho, so the Christians in Egypt, they, they suffered a lot of persecution. They were an easy target. Um, they didn't fight back. They, you know, they were... So the, if you notice, a lot of the Orthodox Christians, they're very, um, they're more pacifist. We don't, you know, if we ever, if any of us engaged in war was really, we were constrict, constricted or, uh, I forgot, I, I don't know how to say the term, but essentially taken into the Roman army to, to serve. But, um, and, but we held fast in the faith. So if, if the Roman, if the Roman governor in, in you know, in, in Alexandria, for example, said, Okay, you can't. You now can't worship this Jesus. Now you have to worship Artemis. You know, and they made it law. We would oppose it and still worship Jesus. And a lot of us were persecuted and beheaded. So the the church prides themselves on having a lot of these early church martyrs that were killed for their faith. Mm. And one of them was I remember I popped the video and it was of a of an eighteen year old by the name of Mina, Mina the martyr. And um, I remember I was watching the video, and it just spoke to me because so so he so Mina was told he was he was a soldier in the Roman army, and he was told that he no like the Roman governor governor said you can now Christians now have to worship a Roman pagan god and no longer can they worship anything else, and he refused, and so he fled he fled his service and he went into the desert like a lot of. So early Christian monasticism started in Egypt. So a lot of 
early Christian um, Egyptian saints uh, are, were known to be desert dwellers or hermits. And so he lit, he lit a, a monastic life, an ascetic monastic life, <coughs> in the wilderness. And, and then the story goes that an angel of the Lord came to him and said, it is ta- time now to receive your crown of martyrdom, and you will go and profess your faith to the governor, and he will, he will torture you, but God will stand with you and, and heal you and, and cause many people to come to faith, and then you will receive your, your crown of martyrdom and be beheaded. And, uh, and he received, and the angel said, you're going to receive three crowns, one for your, for your um, celibacy, because he was a virgin, one for your uh, asceticism and monasticism, and one for your martyrdom. And, um, and I don't know, something about that video at that moment struck a chord with me. And I remembered my parents would take us to a monastery uh, in the 90s. Well, it's still around, actually. It's called, it's, it's the first Coptic monastery outside of Egypt, here in California, called St. Anthony's Coptic Monastery, and just past Barstow in a town called Newberry Springs or Yermo. They keep changing it. I don't know why. Sometimes it's Yermo, sometimes it's Newberry Springs. I, I, they can't make up their mind. But uh, So I started going to that monastery again, and uh, I fell in love with the monastic life. Um, I would go on spiritual retreats, and, you know, when you go on spiritual retreats, you're essentially you're, you're getting a taste of what it's like to be a monk. I mean, you say you, you loved monastic life. Did you feel then a deep calling and connection to Jesus, to God? Absolutely. Did you, that's an unusual thing for a teenager. Very, for a 16-year-old, right? Sure. I guess I was always unusual. I, I don't know. This is the best way to describe it. I was pretty unusual already as a kid. You'd already had your first sacrifice by dying as a baby. I guess you can say, yeah. I guess you can say, yeah. Maybe, perhaps. That might have marked you as special. <laughs> perhaps I don't want to say special or anything, but no, special's okay. Different, I guess. I was very different. At a I different wonder point. if that like does something to you. You know what I mean? I think it does. I think it does something to you. I don't know what it is, but I it think touches. it gives you a mark of some sort. Perhaps I have theories about it. I would love to hear because I've met others who have also died, and I knew. I don't want to go off track of you, but I knew when I sat down with these people, I looked around and I said. Can I ask a really weird question? These are people I had just met literally wow. like 10 minutes earlier. I said, have all of you died at some point in your lives? And they all looked at me. They all didn't. It was at a party. so And they, they all had said yes. Every wow. single one of them. And I knew it. I just knew it. Wow. I think it marks you. Just like when I saw you, I was like, this guy, there's something different about him. I think it marks you. At least to the people that have also died. Wow. But I don't know. It could be... I could just be insane. No, no. I, <laughs> so, okay, monastic I love this life. theory. I love this theory. Uh, monastic life. So, yeah, I, w- I would go spend retreats. And, um, and yeah, there is... So, you have to... It stems from loving God, right? So, you just... You're in practice of silence? Or are no. there prayers? Or is it something that, you know, you're eating and thinking of God and sleeping and thinking of God? What? Sure. So, monastic life... In the, in the Coptic Orthodox Church is different than what you would normally see on television like that a Catholic like Bene- Benedictine like order would do where they might practice a vow of silence silence for a period of time. They don't do that at this monastery. So the, the monastic rule is there's three rules. Celibacy, obviously, that's a given, right? Uh, poverty. 
and uh, obedience to your to your abbot father, your spiritual father. And your life is pretty much dictated in terms of you have a period of work where you're working and you're doing services in the monastery. Father God or Father, your mentor spiritually? It's your, your spiritual mentor. Got it, got your it. Your father it. of confession. Got it. Yeah, an abbot, you know, it's a, a father that you confess to and then he gives you spiritual guidance. Um, and so... So you show obedience to him. You show obedience to the to everyone else too in the in the monastery in the community. Life is spent. You wake up at five in the morning to do prayers. Um, after that, there's usually liturgy. You go to that. Uh, that's not every day, but on most days, like Wednesdays, Fridays, uh, Sundays, uh, you go to liturgy. Then you have you break fast with your other monks, and then after that, usually there's work that's assigned. If you're a monk. You already have probably a role, or something you do that you, some some monks, you know, work in the in the bookstore, selling books and resupplying the shelves. You weren't uh, going to school. No, I was, but this was just during breaks. So winter breaks, summer breaks, that's mm-hmm. where they had go. Um, so yeah, you'd have assigned work. Some monks they do other tasks, um, and it varies, you know, depending on whatever they assign you, and then. And then under that, there's prayers. So there's the Coptic Book of Hours. You'd have to you have to pray that at certain hours. So they, one of the monks will go and ring the bell, and you go to the church and you do the prayers. And and so that's essentially your 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 life is um, it's a life of sacrifice. It's a very difficult life. You know, some people think oh it sounds like escapism, right? Like you're escaping the world and living this cozy life where you don't have to worry about rent and bills and sex. And that too, yeah. <laughs> Sex is complicated. Sex is complicated, and yeah, you don't you don't have to you don't have a family to support. However, to be honest with you, if anyone thinks that, I challenge them to go try it. It's the most difficult life you could ever do. The absence of material things, you know, enhances your spiritual life, but it also creates this hyper thought of like these attacks these mental attacks where you start pitying, pitying yourself, hmm. uh, wondering why you've wasted your life like this. Which this, the this before going to the monastery or this being in the monastery? Being in the monastery. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you get attacks. Now, the attacks, the monks like to say that this is a spiritual attack. It comes from the devil. Um, there's probably, a, probably an equal balance of, <laughs> of demonic warfare was they call unseen warfare and mental, you know, because you're alone, you know, you're left to, to your thoughts. And that's why they assign you work. The work is to keep your mind busy and occupied so you're not free to think. Makes sense. You know, because when you're idle, thoughts come in, you know, and thoughts will, you know, lead you to do things that you don't, you shouldn't be doing, you know. Idle thought is, uh, is a scary, you know, can be scary for a monk. I think for anyone. For anyone, absolutely. Yeah, left to our own devices, our <clears throat> minds uh, can be quite cruel and unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought, well, you know what? I think this is what I'm going to do. Out of high school, I'm going to go and join this monastery. While it was difficult, <laughs> were you still finding the answers you were seeking about finding the goodness? Yeah, well, I was I was still not, you know, I was. my eyes were becoming more and more open to evil in the world. You know, 9-11 sort of, like I said, was the catalyst for me to realize, you know, the world's not this innocent fairyland. It's 
pretty scary. Yeah. People are jerks. People are jerks. And so, to me, the 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 sort of um, the answer wasn't I can fix this. At that age, I didn't think this can be fixed. I thought there's something much more evil. There's an evil force that's more more powerful than people. You know, and you have to understand. I thought it was demonic. To me, I thought this is a demonic force. And the answer to it is not to fix the world, but it's rather to turn to God. Um, so that was sort of my answer at 16. Mm. And, um, and so when I would go to the monastery, the yearning to, to live that spiritual life and commit the sacrifice to, for God of, you know, uh, of re- renouncing the world, it grew stronger. You know, my prayers... And my Bible studies, they grow more fervent. Are you turning away from your family or toward your family? You technically, at this point, you're... I mean, granted, yeah, I was still with my family. I was still living at home. But that they weren't in the same brain space as you. So that would separate you, I would imagine. Absolutely. And they were against it. Hmm. They didn't want me to go. Obviously, I'm the only son. You know, the only son's a big deal in the Middle East. You have some sperm to get out there in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right? Yeah, they want to have grandchildren. Yeah, of course. So there's that, right? They don't want me to leave. A, I'm supposed to, I have a duty to fulfill, and the duty is to take care of them in their old age. That's one. And then two, to give them, to pass on the family name. And I was like, no, this is not, this is not what I want. So the, the one caveat to you being a monk in the Orthodox churches, you need a letter of recommendation from your confessor father. And uh, so I told my confessor father I want to be a monk. And he said, well, I, you know, you can't do this out of high school. It's not possible. You actually need to go get a degree. And I was like, what's the point? You know, like, it's like I'm going to get a degree in something I'm not going to use. What's well, did he mean a theologian or no? As anything, any, oh. any degree. And to him... It was because of the sacrificial element. Because you wanna, you can't just want to join a monastery for the wrong reasons, right? Like, they're testing you. So, some people might want to join the monastery because they feel like, I can't live in the world. But he's essentially saying, no, you need to get a degree. You need to show that you can live in the world. And you're sacrificing that choice to live with God. Mm-hmm. Exclusively with God. Because... To live in a monastery, it's the full it's the full expression of living with God. Here in the world, it's hard to live with God. You can, but you're distracted constantly. But over there, there's no excuse. It's the full expression of it. So, so when I got out of high school, I didn't really know what to study. I went to community college here in Los Angeles, um, and then uh, and then I decided. At a community college, I'm going to transfer to seminary. And I went to seminary and, yeah, I got a degree in theology because I was like, well, I don't want to, there's nothing else that I want to study. Getting a degree in theology to me, I think, would be so cool, firstly. Uh, do you, did you then study other religions as well and yeah. find how similar they all are? And Yes. Uh, so, you know, it's funny, in, uh, at community college, I took a history of religions class. Mm. And luckily, I'm... So Best I'm a, class ever. It's an awesome class. I love that class. I, I love mine too. You know, but they mislead you a little. Like, the, the, when I went to in Valley, the mis, they misled led me a little bit. So luckily, I'm a very obsessed person. 
Like if I like something, I obsess I obsess study it. Like I'll study it day and night and really like obsess over it. So I was at that point, everything that she was the teacher was telling me, I was looking into it because in her <clears throat> the class was sort of curated to I don't want to say undermine Christianity. But there was obviously the claims that within the Near Eastern faiths, there's a lot of similarities mm-hmm. to the point where it seems like there's borrowing or sure. stealing or, co- you know, plagiarizing. I don't know. I think it was nice <coughs> to help people assimilate to whatever situation they were in. They had to take the old gods and, and turn them into the new gods in order mm. to make folks feel more comfortable or confident. Yeah, perhaps, you know... The, Christmas being a great example. Yeah, Christmas being a great example. And there is, you know, there is a, a lot of similarity, absolutely. You know, the but there was some misguidance. Like, I remember one of the ones, and I remember I even brought it up to the teacher, you know, and I had evidence to back it, was she talked about Mithra, or she referred to him as Mithras. You've probably heard of the story. Mithras is a um, Sumerian god who, you know... Essentially, his his uh, day of celebration is celebrated on December twenty fifth, and um, he also has a virgin birth and that sort of thing. So it turns out a lot of the the stories about Mithras are not from the the uh, Sumerian uh, the Sumerian narrative. It's really from the Roman adaptation of the story, mm-hmm. which they now they don't call him Mithras. It's Mithra, and Mithra comes after Christ and. Yes, the only similarity is that December 25th happens to be... But the funny thing is the Orthodox don't celebrate December 25th. They celebrate a different date. Right. You know, but it was the Romans who adopted the December 25th as the, the date, and it stuck. But um, So there is that. But So I, I told the teacher a lot of what you're saying about Mithras, the Sumerians never said it. It was very... There's very little story. In fact, the only real things we know about him is he rides on a horse. You know, there's sculptures of that. But. And eventually he fought Godzilla. No, wait. That's <laughs> Mothra. Mothra. <laughs> that's, a, that's funny, actually. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Besides all the, you know, a lot of what you're saying, it, it, it comes after Christ. It doesn't predate Christ. It, the Roman, it was a Roman adaptation. Did she listen to you? She said she'll look into it. Oh. I remember I printed it out and gave it to her. But there was, you know, there are She's narratives. She's like, this kid... <laughs> Yeah, there were there is a narrative there is a lot of stories that are are interesting. So like for example, one of the ones that really hit a chord with me, it wasn't like the epic of Gilgamesh because everyone quotes mm, that one, right? Sure. I do. I mean, yeah. the flood story. The flood story. But the one that's probably interesting, you may have heard of this. It's actually it is you so you know of the book Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Mm. So there is uh, an Egyptian narrative, an Egyptian story called A Man Wrestles with His Ba. And Ba in ancient Egyptian means soul or spirit. And the story is almost a verbatim copy. The Egyptian fable is much older than than the Hebrew one. Um, the Hebrew one being attributed to Solomon, you know, looking outside his balcony, seeing men toiling in the sun. The Egyptian narrative, it's, you know, a king, a pharaoh who's looking out, seeing men toiling in the sun. The only... It's almost so verbatim that they're even using the same language, you know. But um, the only big difference between the two is in the Egyptian narrative, this pharaoh is contemplating suicide. He's thinking of jumping out of the balcony and saying, well, this life has no meaning. It's kind of like there's no real um, 
uh, like I could have been born in, into labor, you know, but here I am, I'm born into royalty and sort of like rolling the dice in a, in a, in a figure, like figuratively speaking. So he was saying, if I were to die right now, what's the purpose? Like there's nothing, there's no purpose to life. Like life is sort of meaningless. It's he, arbitrary. It's arbitrary. That's a good way to put it. But he doesn't do that. He decides that, you know, there's still, there must be something still more, more to this. In the Hebrew narrative, obviously, that Solomon doesn't contemplate suicide. It's against religion, so. for especially for someone revered as Solomon. Well, that's the frustrating thing about people that say, you know, the Bible is, firstly, the, the idea that they think white people wrote it. Secondly, the idea that, it, that these were snapshots for only one time period without understanding that those stories go so far back yeah. and that they're oral traditions mm-hmm. that came along and got rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten yeah there's a lot of interesting things when there's like this innate desire to worship right and worship a god or to seek answers or turn away from one or perhaps turn away from one (laughs) ego isn't i mean i'm fascinated by the human ego yes when when you speak of evil i think of it as ego. ego yeah well ego in the eastern sense it's a that is something you have to curtail like and keep under control mm-hmm. one of my favorite all-time books is the alchemist oh the alchemist yeah you read it yeah partially not all of it love no. that book you know i really like speaking of religion and different religions my favorite philosophy book is the tao te ching uh, i think the copy i have is the stephen mitchell version more gender neutral surprisingly okay. anyone who goes to seminary they get exposed to uh, scriptural criticism so scriptural criticism, a lot of people who, who don't know the, how we get the manuscripts and the history of the manuscripts and how much plethora there is and the sort of evidence that supports it might not totally, uh, they might be biased towards, you know, Christian scripture, you know, um, mm-hmm. now granted, now the Old Testament, there's certain things like I mentioned, Ecclesiastes that. There's, there's the Egyptian fable that sort of like, that's a straight, to me, that's a strange one. That's a big anomaly. But when it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament's pretty, pretty strong in terms of the history of the manuscripts. And, but still uh, missing stuff. That we know there's things that are missing. Like which? Uh, like Gnostics. The Gnostics. As you know, the Gnostics were, there was a lot of heretical groups at the time, at that time. Besides the Gnostics, there was the Arians, not to be confused with. Right. right uh, which were fought now. Theologically, a lot of these people were debated. And the Gnostics were a group that started producing uh, works similar to that that were being spread within the Christian church and saint and becoming sacred in the Christian church. Also, during Jesus' time, there was, a, there was a person on that hill, and there was a person on that hill, and there was a person on that hill, <laughs> and all of them saying, I'm a savior. You know, You're, There was a lot of that going there on. There was, absolutely. In fact... Monty Python does a good riff on that in The Life of Brian. <laughs> in fact, in the book of Acts, there's a, a, a very uh, interesting story of um of peter you know when he was arrested and they and they let him go and one of the reasons why the, the sanhedrin let him go he said because there's so many people claiming to be the messiah there was this guy there was this guy of barnabas yeah. and, and so many people claim to be handful of messiahs yeah there's a handful of messiahs and if he and they let him go and they said we're gonna let we're gonna let him go because if it's from god you can't stop it you know and granted there were and even Jesus said, there'll be many that come in this name. Now, for some reason, Jesus 
stuck. And there is, I guess, Christians looking look at it as a, it's divine. That element of it has there's a divine element to Jesus's um, historicity and and being able to stay within uh, within relevance and and the um, and the extreme sort of conversion that occurred. That we we view that as a divine element that sort of ver verifies and for us validates the faith. Um, now, granted, yeah, there were many people that claimed to be the Messiah, um, but for some reason, Jesus sort of surpassed those mm -hmm. those others. Um, but yeah, so seminary seminary is biased, right? Because seminary we we learn Christian theology. Sure. But I did try to look in other religions to the best of my ability, especially ones that were more predominant, like Islam and Judaism. A few uh, priests I've had conversations with who obviously have their doctorate in theology, they were very well versed in multitudes of religions. So, yeah, at least the big three. At least the big three. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's because especially like those particular faiths I mentioned, there they all kind of have they all have the same stories, you know, yeah. and they all and they all have a golden rule. That's true. Yeah, they have mm -hmm. golden rules that are very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of them use even the same, they have the same prophets. And, mm. um, but there is a difference, right? Obviously, because we don't follow that particular thing. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, I love theology. I, you know, I graduated in 2009, so it's, it's been a long time since I really even talk theology <laughs> well and obviously you know, yeah i love it though it's, oh, I love theology. it's I love, so I talk. fun to talk about i don't talk to, with anyone about theology. it's, it's so it's much fun. fun to talk about as long yeah. as people aren't you know don't get pissed or whatever when you're talking about it i just i find it fascinating it is and also none of us were there so. <laughs> that's true if we had a time machine we could go back and... it, it would be an interesting <laughs> thing to go back to but that's where faith comes in that's, that's the whole faith point of faith in. absolutely absolutely and free will and all those good things and i think the bottom line is, for some inexplicable reason, if there is a God, and I believe in God, but if there is or isn't, but if there is a God, and God has enough faith in us to believe that we'll come to know God. And no matter what you consider the starting of the universe to be, whether it was, you know, God, or just an inexplicable kaboom. Yeah. Uh... It doesn't change the fact that I wish people would just be better human beings. I agree. You know, one Get of their ego's way, the ego being the devil. The me. ego being the devil. That's an interesting way to look at it. You know, the the devil and pride is also another big element in Christianity, right? The devil instills pride. In fact, in the Orthodox sense, vainglory is looked at in a very, uh, ne very negative light. And in monks, especially, mm. they have to, one of the attacks that the devil likes to use is is pride and vainglory and make it like you know telling the monk look how spiritual you've gotten and look what the spiritual levels you've achieved because monks and this actually leads to mind reading by the way <laughs> <laughs> in the orthodox egyptian church it is very common to meet someone who has gifts of the spirit now i went to a reformed christian seminary by the way i went to a seminary that was pentecostal where they their gifts of the spirit is speaking in tongues. Sure, right? which is so fascinating. Which is really fascinating. I, I think, and you know, I, when I was in seminary, I did a paper on the speaking of tongues. I actually really immersed myself in trying to do it. You know, because I, I actually believe the people who 
speaking in tongues are being genuine. Like they're being sincere about what they believe they can do. I just don't think the phenomenon is is religious or 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 its origins of a, is of a, um, a divine nature. I think it's I think it's hypnotism. I think it's suggestibility. Mm, I would I would argue for that. Yeah, and having I, watched it on the old television box that yeah. and to see that they do seem to be in an ecstatic hypnosis. Yeah, it's a highly suggestible state. You're in there. They're playing worship music. Worship music excites the. The emotions and in that state it's expected there's the expectation mm. that if you have the holy spirit you should be able to do this and you are expected to do this and those the combination of those things brings that out even the way the pastors touch the yeah. parishioners is very similar to how hypnotists touch people that's true um so there is i have a sort of a a sort of belief that a lot of the faith healers that many people have seen on television, like Benny Hinn and a lot of these guys, they're they're really actually hypnotists. Now, well, prayer is a form of hypnotism, right? And I and I yeah. think that I'm a big believer that prayer does work. I think yeah. that your brain is an ally, or uh, the worst case scenario, right? Like we said yeah. before, your brain is either going to make your life a living hell, or it's going to help heal you, depending on your point of view absolutely big big believer in that you actually said something that that's very profound because i believe in that too and you know hypnotism so the we could even talk about the history of hypnotism because hypnotism is actually very old older than mesmer it's as old as as far as we know the earliest it, that it's recorded was in ancient egypt but something Someone, if there is a creator, put it there. They allowed access into a, a part of your mind, which we call the subconscious mind. It's I actually believe it's by design. And the being that put that by design has infused that within religion. Mm, interesting. Prayer is, there's something that Orthodox and Catholics do that after studying hypnosis, it made sense to me. When you pray, you stare up. The rolling the eyes up creates hypersuggestibility. And when you're done with a prayer, you actually seal the prayer with the sign of the cross. That brings you out of the suggestible state. And those elements are elements that we've come to pattern in hypnosis as this. Because hypnosis is really the study of trance, trance phenomenon. And trance phenomenon has been employed in cultures and civilizations rural cultures as well mm. you know with fire dancing and, and some symbols yeah and sur- yeah it's way back when they use it for surgeries they use it for surgeries in fact the doctor who was famous for it was a doctor from england called james isdale and he went to india and he because india did not have um anesthetics he would employ hypnotism and he wrote one of the earliest books called Mesmerism in India. And that's how you know how it's old because it predates the term hypnotism. It was called Mesmerism. And uh, he was using it. And he discovers very interesting things about trance within the Indian culture that he could not achieve within a Western culture. That's also very fascinating. And it's all about the belief systems of any given culture. You yes. can incorporate that into making it work. And the level of depth that mm-hmm. they can go. They can go in a much greater level of depth. Mm-hmm. Like the um, 
the mystics, the Indian, just the dudes sitting on the side of the yeah. sidewalk. Yeah, well, uh, they have a name. I know. I know. I'm trying I to think of the name. name. Yeah, I'm Me trying to too. think of the name too. Besides Guru or Guruji, there's mm-hmm. another. But yeah, they can go to an extreme level of depth. And he discovered something called the Isdale state. And the Isdale state is a level of depth that you will probably, as a hypnotist, never experience. But if you do, there's an out. It's extreme level of hypnotism depth that the person does not come out of hypnotism. Mm. where you tell them to come out and they don't listen to you because it's so euphoric that they want to stay in that state to the point where their body their body becomes completely cataleptic like you can grab their arm and it will stay there forever put it you know it's malleable their body's malleable and uh, James Isdale discovered that this state called the what he termed it as the Isdale state but it's just a an extreme level of depth where the person no longer responds, responds to the hypnotist and, and they will not pull themselves out. They will come out when they want to, but it's such a euphoric state that they choose not to. Fascinating. Yeah, and uh, the solution to it was discovered by a 20th century hypnotist um, called Dave Elman, who wrote about it in his... He wrote one book on hypnotism, and it was just called Hypnotherapy. Dave Elman was, he was a stage performer, a stage hypnotist. He performed even on television in the, in the 30s and 40s. And then he um, started uh, b- being employed to teach dentists how to use hypnotism in the dental office for people who don't want anesthesia. Um, and during one of his demonstrations with the, with the dentists, um, you know, he would do the circuits like he'd be taken all over the country and he would do these mm-hmm. talks and teach basic inductions to dentists that they that they could use and during his demonstrations he hypnotized one of the the, the dental you know watchers who just volunteered and she went into the isdale state and uh and he couldn't get her out and he knew what the isdale state was because he read the book and he said he tried for a while to get her out and it was sort of get he was starting to sweat and then he realized a solution. And the solution was, he whispered in his ear, in her ear that if you don't come out right now, I will rig this so that you will never experience this state again. And, and she pulled, she herself, pulled out. herself out. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that a solution. So that's a solution to this. Would she system. have recollection? Would a person have recollection of that euphoria once they're out of the trance? Or is it something that can only be... Uh, received in that moment of trance that's a good question I actually don't know I wonder I don't know because it's such a rare thing that it's not really like I've never had anyone experience that in in my practice Um, but I imagine it's a beautiful thing Hmm. I I mean that level of trance must be amazing touching God maybe who knows maybe you're connected that that way uh, the temple of God is within then maybe that's what it is you get down to the spiral center of the Tootsie Pop <laughs> and the answer is right there you know it could you be know, the owl doesn't need to tell you that all right so you're in a monastery obviously you did not stay what happened yeah yeah that's good so I tried for 10 years to try to be a monk my father confession kept postponing. So I eventually went to seminary. That took six years. Did you, you stayed a virgin all that time? Uh, yeah. Wow, good for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Don't worry, it didn't last that long. <laughs> <after>. <laughs> <laughs> I 
yeah, so, you know, I tried and my, my father confession kept pushing it back. And it was actually a very wise... Pushing which back? The, the letter of recommendation oh, for me to go. Oh, your, that father. Sorry. Yeah. Not your actual father. Yeah, not my actual father. <laughs> he wouldn't want me to go at all. <laughs> so, yeah, my confession father who needs to give me a letter of recommendation. Did you say, what's the deal? Yeah, we did have those discussions. And he told me, he's like, there's no rush. Oh, interesting. You know? He saw something. Yeah, he pretty much, he knew, he was wise enough to know and discern that you have to, when you're that young and you want to do something that is pretty much a, a lifelong commitment. This isn't like yeah. you're a Buddhist monk and you go and you do this thing for a number of years and you go back into the world. This is, no, this is a the rest of your life. Now, granted, there's a novice period to a monk. You don't just like become nuns. a monk. Yeah, sure. yeah, there's a novice. So you, novice periods could be quite a long time before you be a, be a monk. He knew that I shouldn't rush into anything, that I should wait really test these thoughts and the way to test them is time give yourself time there's no rush you know it doesn't matter if you become a monk today or tomorrow or or in five years you know if this is what you if this is what's meant for you if this is what god's will is for you you will do it and i was stubborn i wanted to do it and i remember at one point i sort of i learned the very valuable lesson Right? So I did, some people might say you wasted 10 years of your life and you went to seminary, you went to a school that you couldn't do anything with a degree, right? Which some people might say that. I don't know, I think that's a cool degree personally, but <laughs> I, I get what you're it. saying. It's not a practical degree, but some people might say, look at it as I wasted time, but I did learn a valuable lesson. And the valuable lesson was I was forcing my will and I wasn't really allowing God's will to be done. And when I really ask God in prayer, if this really is your will, then ease my way and help me be a monk. Show me. And if it's not your will, show me your will. Whatever your will is, I surrender. Just let me obey your will. And I remember shortly after I said that prayer, the the next time I went to the monastery, I saw it with very different eyes. Like... It was almost like the spiritual curtains were removed. And I saw... Now, granted, the monastery is still very spiritual, but I saw it differently. Mm. Something felt different. And I knew the answer was either... The answer was either... It was There was either two answers. Either it was no, this isn't for you, or not yet. And so I gave up on the idea. And I went back into just figuring out what am I going to do next. And I turned to magic. <laughs> and I turned to doing magic again. I got back into magic. I mean, I was always kind of doing that. Even when I was in seminary, I would still kind of do tricks for people. Mm. It was, How did it fun. become uh, hypnotism? Sure. Mentalism and hypnotism. So it was mentalism first... Explain, I've had a mentalist on the show before, but just just, just for the heck of it, uh, explain what mentalism is. Sure. So, you know, the the, the thing is, mentalism is, um, I want to give it the fair explanation, but in order to do that, it's a little lengthier, but I'll try my best to shorten it. So mentalism, some people think it's another branch of magic. It really isn't. The magicians who say that don't know the history of mentalism. Mentalism has different starts. 
as far as we know, one of the earliest practitioners of something similar to what we call a mental act or reading minds or discerning a question to an answer was in the 11th century by a Greek whose name was Alexander the Paphlagonian. <laughs> that must have been hard to put on his business card. Right? Yeah. <laughs> a big tab- he had a big tablet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and is Alexander the Paphlagonian, the mental marvel. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Esquire. But uh, yeah, he was, and we only know his story because he had a critic, a guy named Lucian, who watched him perform an, a, a mental effect. That's the best way to describe it, where essentially he would have a, a group that would gather around a fire and they would, one of the members of the group would write a question to an, an a question that they needed an answer for on, on a parchment. He would fold it, he would rip it and put it in the fire and the smokes would rise up and an answer would be given. And Lucian said, this guy is secretly somehow able to see the information. So he was kind of like the James Randi of this time, right? So he was one of the very first that we know of. Um, and then later on, um, there was a, uh, an Italian by the, jam- by the name of Joseph Panetti, who did a, the earliest t- type of act, which was called, it's called a two-person mental act. And he did it with his son, where uh, he would be, his son would be blindfolded on stage. And you've seen this. You've seen this act. It's been popularized now with, by many people like on America's Got Talent, the clairvoyance, and uh, have done it on the... Panetti would go out into the audience and people would hold random articles and the son who was blindfolded would somehow telepathically in communication with his father without much words being said is able to say what the objects were and the names of the people. After Panetti, um, there was another two-person act by one of the very... Kind of the, he's known as the, the modern-day father of magic, uh, a gentleman named Robert Houdin, a Frenchman. Uh, he also did the two-man mental act. It was called a two-person act because it required two people, obviously. But mentalism had another start, right? So it started, so it had these weird starts that all kind of culminated. Is it observation? Uh, it's a variety of things. It's a variety of things. And, and I would say that the, that just like magicians, we're not at liberty at all. Like, oh, of course. To discuss, no. but but it is it employs a variety of it's whatever it's whatever information you can give us, we will take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. really the sure. The, 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 but on just subtle levels, from my understanding, I saw um, the in and of itself. Oh yeah, Derek Delgadio. He's Holy amazing. God. Yeah, he's amazing. So good. He's awesome. Um, so then, mentalism had another really interesting spawn of a start. Through the spiritualist movement, yes, which you've heard of, I'm sure the Fox Sisters, mm-hmm. and Daniel De Hume, and a lot of these early spiritualist uh, movement uh, mediums, and so from there we get the one man mental act. Now, some people would like to say the Davenport brothers started a stage presenting spiritualism on stage, but they weren't a mental act. The first mental act was a guy named John Randall Brown very sadly that most mentalists don't even know the name but he's the first one man mental act prior to that it was a two man act generally but with him it was a one man deal and he actually died in an unmarked grave Mm. kind of a sad ending but and there was a point in his life where he was so famous that I think a, a column wrote about him and said 
he has the American people grabbed by the neck because he was so uh, it was such a unique form of entertainment. Now, most one-man mental acts professed psychic abilities. So they profess, I'm reading your mind. This is what I'm doing. Do you believe in psychic ability? This is the funny thing. So most magicians and mentalists you might meet will say no, that it's all BS. I like to fancy myself as an amateur parapsychologist because I study it independently. And I say yes, there is. Me too. I believe there is, absolutely. And I could even reference a lot of stuff because I love that. I love looking into this stuff. But yeah, so early one-man mental acts, they, they claimed psychic phenomenon, psychic ability. From John Randall Brown, he had imitators, people who came after, who copied uh, him. One of them was his manager, um, who was also the manager of a very famous uh, one-man mental... Well, I don't even want to say man because she's a woman. A one-woman mental act, a really famous person. Her name was Anna Eva Fay, And she was so popular that Houdini was jealous of the amount of shows she was booking constantly. Huh. She was filling in theaters. Good for when her. Sometimes, when sometimes some of, her, some of his theaters weren't as packed, you know. So Anna Eva Faye claimed realism too. She claimed to be real. Um, she, as far as we know, she wasn't. Later she professed she was, really was just tricks. And in fact, her manager, a guy named Washington Irving Bishop, he exposed her. He was her manager. He was involved in a romantic relationship with her. Then something happened where they split. He started exposing her act, and his show became Expose. Oh, wow. An Expose show, which... He was the first magic Jerry Springer. Sort of, yeah. I guess you could say that, yeah. And there were people doing Expose spiritualist acts, and so he was trying to capitalize on the success of that. Then he managed John Randall Brown, and then he started stealing his act. And then he started touring the world because he started realizing, you know, maybe other people haven't seen this act in other parts of the world. And then Karma got him because one of his managers when he was in England, a young lad, uh, helped him and copied his act. <laughs> God, it's a very unscrupulous Cumberland. Yeah. Kind of situation, this magic world. It is. They, it's just like comedy and a lot of things. People will copy success, right? Yeah. They'll see the dollar signs and... I read The Prestige. I could do it's that. It's a great book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the book and the movie is fantastic. Yeah. They're very different. Yeah, they are, yes. But that context, right, of competition mm-hmm. with the magic and wanting to outdo the other and, yeah. and succeed brutal. and be the... Yeah, it's brutal. And it still exists. You know, And it existed in the one-man mental act. Somewhere along the line of the turn of the 20th century, magicians started adapting mental effects Mm. and this interested you yeah so most magicians who you find will do mentalism or most mentalists you find today started doing magic which i am of the same caliber you started with mentalism and then went to magic no i was you learned magic as a kid but did you when you started performing what were you doing sure yeah so i did magic when i was a kid but i was an amateur yeah um when i took up mentalism it was around 2008 and it was because I was sort of, I, you know, it's funny when I was, even when I was a kid, a lot of the stuff that would intrigue me was not the slide of hand making things disappear. It was actually the, you're going to think of a color and I'm going to tell you what color you're thinking. Orange. 
You know, yeah. <laughs> I love orange, but it's one of my, it's my favorite, favorite colors. It's my favorite color, too. Oh, my God. I'm not kidding you. It's my favorite color. But so, but I didn't realize I was doing, I was doing like a mental magic. But I was, real, like I sort of, I guess what, in 2008, I kind of realized this is what I actually like. So I started looking into mentalism and got really like bit by the bug, I guess you can say, and really started doing, just became a mentalist, like completely devoted to that. And then at some point when you do a mental, a mentalism act, you have to make a decision. And the decision is, am I a mentalist who's just, just like a magician, just employing tricks on stage? Or can I tap into something real? And when you start going into that area, you start getting into more hypnotism and things like that. So, so hypnotism is almost like the next thing that you learn as a, as a mentalist. Not all mentalists learn hypnotism. It's only the ones who really want to put, start doing this stuff in a much more unreal terms yeah as opposed to employing uh you know deception like a magician would can we do one yeah okay what do we have to do um do you want to do the experiment i did for you you know that experiment works better that will work good on the for people that can't see us that are just listening that's a good question do you want me to get a name of someone you're thinking? Yeah, of? that'd be cool. Sure. All right. You know, remember, I, I feel like I'm making you like dance. No, no. You know, Alexander the Paphlagonian, right? I mentioned he would take a he would take parchment. I want you to think of a name, Susan. It could be anyone. Okay. Someone obviously that you have not mentioned the name to me. Right. Uh, no one that I would know. And whoever you're thinking of, write their name on the line and close it like a book. Okay. I, I'll look away. I promise. Okay. First name. Good. You know, another thing he would do, like I mentioned is he would take the paper. Yeah, I don't want you to think I'm looking at it. No. If I fold it again, I can't see it. That's correct. But I would rip it too. Because if I rip it, at this point, it exists in your mind. Because all I needed you to do is to write it down. Right. The act of writing locks it in your mind. Right. Now, granted, it exists in the papers, but for that, I probably need to tape it or put it together like a little puzzle. And are you right-handed or left-handed, Susan? I never asked you. Mostly right, but I'm both. You're but, both. Yeah. And could I ask you to also stand up, too? Yeah. Let's do this thing. <laughs> and you said you're right-handed, yes? Yeah, a little basically. Bit of yeah. Open, I want you to open your hand. And this is someone you're really close to, yes? Yeah. Family. No, yeah. it's a friend. It's a friend, but, but... it could be family. You know how it is with friends. Yes. I'm going to rip the rest of the papers. I can't see anything. Open no. your hand. Can you see anything? No. Keep your hand closed. Am I thinking of the name? Yeah, think of the name very carefully in your mind. Okay. Female, female friend. Your friend Jill. Shit! How did you do that? <laughs> That's so crazy! <laughs> he nailed it! <laughs> what? Let me see the hair stand up on my arm. That's it's fun. so wild. Very cool. Thank you. You know, the, the one thing I, I want to do a takeaway here just to say, you know, the, the real ob objective in doing... A mental act or a magic act is to leave people with mystery yeah it's again that feeling of mystery like how you know because that is exceptional it's yeah that's the that's the that's the what we're trying to put on the platform is mystery that's what we're trying to elevate yeah and you know one of the things that mentalists people who don't really i guess the word i'm looking for is don't understand what we do they might conscrew us with someone who's trying to cleanse your aura or, 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 you know, tell you that you have this negative, like this curse on you and you need to, we can Pay remove it. Pay them a thousand dollars. Correct. Yeah. And we don't, that's not what we do. What we do is a theatrical 
It's a theatrical mystery performance. And in one of the most famous mentalists of the 20th century, who is still with us, thankfully, he's been going through some medical issues, is a gentleman named Max Maven. Not his real name. He had a real name prior, but it's Max Maven now. That's his name. Uh, And he says that mentalism, or his definition of magic mentalism, is the artistic exploration of mystery. That's how he defines it. And I think that's a beautiful definition. That is a beautiful definition. Yeah. Yeah. This has been great. I don't want to keep you all night. It's already so late, but this has been so cool. Tell people how to find you both. So you do... You do hypnotherapy for people. I do. For doing all sorts of things to help them with all sorts of issues. Yeah. Long list. There is a long list. You know, as long as obviously it's within the scope of hypnosis. And the scope of hypnosis is anything that is a uh, vocational, avocational self-improvement. That's the actual medical like uh, that's the actual to be a licensed hypnotherapist that's what you, that's the statement mm. that we could only that we have to stay within those guidelines that it's vocational or avocational self-improvement meaning if there is some sort of uh, condition that a, a, a psychologist would need to look at i would not be able to touch it oh but like other, can you hypnotize me to not kill people exactly <laughs> yeah. right precisely right got it <laughs> uh, and i do stage hypnotism I do stage mind reading. I mix the two, so I'll do stage mind reading and hypnotism in the same show. Um, Tell people how to find you. Uh, I have a website. It's themastermentalist.com. Um, if you look up my Wait, name... Wait, is it themastermentalist.com or it's themastermentalist.com? Sure, it's themastermentalist.com. Okay, good, because sometimes it's... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> it's important to notice which one's which. Yeah. And uh, if you look up my name, Nate or Hannah... Uh, mentalist on Google, uh, you'll see Yelp and I have a lot of reviews. And yeah, you can it's reach a great out to me. show. I can attest. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, yeah. Susan. I appreciate yeah. that. I could tell you were special. Thank you. Oh, it's kind. You know, uh, uh, one of the other things, another beautiful statement that performers like to say is, "There's an art to being an audience." Oh. Not everyone knows how to be an audience, and yeah. you are a terrific audience. And I think it becomes, it's because um, you yourself are an artist. You're a performer. You, you're illustr- I mean, you. I don't want to say illustrator. You're a painter. You draw, and you have so much different forms of art that you express uh, in the various trades that you do. And so, it takes someone with an artistic expression themselves to appreciate someone who's also expressing themselves in a different art. And a curiosity, perhaps. And a curiosity. Perhaps, I, yeah. I, I like to think that I have a childlike sense of wonder, and so that everything is exciting and interesting to me. And so, yeah. when I go to see performances like that, I. J- I don't care if, if someone is deceiving me. I just want to be <laughs> I want to be there in the moment and enjoying yeah. it. I think that's really cool. But you took it next level for me. I was like, no, this is something's up here. <laughs> oh well, thank you. Yeah. You know the suspension of disbelief. It's really it's when it's what you experience when you read a good book or a movie totally. or watch a good a good mystery performance like a magic show or a mind reading show or a hypnotism show. So I have to ask, did you find? Uh, the answer you were seeking about the good versus the evil of the world? Yeah, I did. The answer is never definitive, right? Like, I think the answer evolves. Mm-hmm. But but currently, my stance on it is there's a lot of beautiful things in the world, you know? And, um, you know, you can choose to look at the world and, and only see the evil, which will cause depression and, you know, anxiety and all these other things. Or you can choose to focus on the good. And if you focus on the good, there's plenty of it. 
and uh, I just choose to focus on the good. I, I'm aware of the evil, and but I don't let that, um, you know. There, I'll tell you a really nice, just a quick thing my father in confession told me that has stuck with me for a while, and that is thoughts are like birds that land on your head. You can't stop them from landing on your head, but you can prevent them from making a nest. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think life is a lot, you know, we, ch- we choose what our minds sort of uh, take in, you know, mm-hmm. the information takes in. And if we take in a lot of negative things, it starts to, you know, oh, affect our emotions. Absolutely. And, and stuff. And it's not good. It's not healthy. Oh, I 100% agree with that. Thank you, Nader. Thank you, Susan. This is great. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.